Hi, everybody. This is Narissa, and welcome to the Lioness Method podcast for female business owners, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are passionate about growing their leadership skills, building amazing teams, and solving real-life problems. I'm your host, Narissa Sue, and today we are we have a special panel, an amazing panel of fabulous women. Uh, to talk about how to support our loved ones that may be struggling with addiction. Uh, so I'm just going to read you uh, some quick bios on these fabulous women uh, before we get started on our topic for today. So I would love to introduce you uh, on the top right to, or maybe the right, depends on how you're looking at it, uh, to Emily Wessel. Um, she is the new program director and primary therapist of, at Thrive Treatment. She's also certified with the International Society of Experiential Professionals and has worked extensively with nonprofit organizations, treatment centers, and educational institutions, as well as uh, prison reentry programs as a trainer, coach, group facilitator, and curriculum specialist. She's also held various roles in addiction and mental health treatment industry for the past 12 years and is grateful to be in long-term recovery herself. She holds an MS in clinical mental health counseling from Capella University and a BA in, in Econ from the American University in Washington, DC. Amazing. And then um, in the pink shirt, um, pink top, we have Lane Kennedy. Hi, Lane. And Lane is today's no-nonsense modern day calm maker. She's not your ordinary meditation teacher. She's a holistic pra uh, practitioner, mindfulness teacher, DNA nerd, and host of the Recover Like a Mother podcast. She's been a, a mediator for over two, or sorry, a meditator, not a mediator. And teaches publicly and privately for government agencies and corporations in the San Francisco area and abroad. And last but not least, we have the wonderful Emily Lehman. And Emily has honest conversations with guests about mental health, addiction recovery, and, and self-development, wellness, and spirituality. And she's also she also discusses how they influence each other's um, unique recovery journey, inspired by her own recovery journey and wellness journey. Uh, and Emily's mission is to annihilate the stigma around addiction to provide listeners with the tools, guidance, and motivation to help them navigate her their recovery and personal growth one day at a time as a sober coach. So welcome, ladies. Hello. Thanks, Russ. Amazing. Well, I am so grateful to have you all on the panel today. And um, we came together to discuss something that's near and dear to all of our hearts, which is supporting our loved ones in addiction. And I am so excited to hear each and every one of your perspective because we all offer our own um, recovery journey um, and our own perspective on what healing looks like from, from addiction and what tools we have to offer as women in recovery ourselves uh, to people who may be listening that are that may be uh, sober curious, as Lane likes to say, or um, that are supporting people in active addiction and wanting to know how they can be a better support system. Um, so I would love just to kind of start with um, each one of us um, just kind of uh, sharing how many years of sobriety you have and, and what sobriety means to you. 
Emily, would you like to start, Wessel? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Clarissa, for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you all um, to discuss this topic. It's really, it is really near and dear to my heart. And um, I've been in recovery since 2002, and um, I've been sober ever since. And I didn't necessarily get into recovery because I wanted to. I got kind of uh, nudged in by catching um, some legal challenges, and uh, and I got scared. Really, you know, I got scared for my health, and um, and I wanted to change and. Uh, and so I went the traditional route through 12-step philosophy, but found also um, a couple years in that I had a lot of trauma. And so it wasn't going to be enough to just be in the 12-step space. Um, although I stayed in that space and I'm still currently there, I needed to get some additional support. And that's when I started um, the journey to my own therapeutic uh, experience. And then ultimately, I became a therapist. Amazing. Thank you. Lane? Yeah, it's been a long time. Um, I live in long-term recovery and what that means for me is that I don't drink or do drugs or eat Snickers bars and I haven't done so since 1996. And I have followed a traditional path, a 12-step path. Um, I love my sober life. I never imagined uh, having this life. And for me, um, being sober is, it's more than just giving up alcohol or drugs. It is a path to live a life of total freedom. Uh, like I don't, I don't crave, I don't have big, huge issues. Um, I can pretty much uh, walk about the world free. So it's, um, it means everything to me and it means everything to be able to share it with others. Amazing. Thank you. Emily? Um, I am about five years sober from opioids and I did not go the traditional route like Lane and Emily went. Um, NA, NA was not any part of my recovery. Um, hot yoga, meditation, journaling, and spirituality um, is really what shaped um, my pathway to recovery. And yeah, like Lane said, you know, sobriety to me is being free. And I think that's really important that we've all gotten to that place of peace. I love that. And thank you, ladies, for sharing it. And I wanted us to just and to share that. Um, and I myself, I have four years. Um, and Cinco de Mayo is my birthday. It's so funny. Um, my sober birthday. And what sobriety means to me is that I no longer... And, uh, take drugs or drink alcohol. And I also love that freedom. It just feels so right in my body. And I also took a non-traditional route. I worked with plant medicine, uh, ayahuasca, and I went through a breathwork, uh, breathwork healer training. Um, and I took a lot of holistic uh, pathways, but I also did a lot of uh, self-development work um, along the way. So I wanted to have this particular panel of women because I think each and every one of us has their own unique journey and a perspective to add on what on how we can offer our tools to people that are supporting people that are in addiction right now. So I would love to to move on and just talking about what are some ways that you guys have found that would be really helpful to support um, family members or partners that are struggling with addiction right now. Because as we all know that we've heard the statistics that there's 9,000 
people a month right now since the pandemic started that are passing away uh, from drug overdoses, specifically opioids, but there's other things too uh, that are in the mix, right? Um, and they said that there's a whopping like 10 million people struggling with addiction right now in our country. And with the pandemic, um, I think that it's escalated to a point where people can no longer ignore it. And it's affecting families, it's affecting people's livelihoods, it's affecting um, just their mental health in general. And it's so I think that this conversation is, is so important. And it was actually brought about by somebody who asked that question, like, how do I support my partner or family member who's struggling with addiction? Uh, so Emily, I'd, we'd love to hear from you. Emily Wessel. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. So, well, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do to support a family member or a loved one that's in recovery. And it depends really on, I think, where they are in that process. You know, I'm a big fan of the stages of change and kind of identifying, you could just Google stages of change and, and just read a little bit about it and kind of identifying where your loved one is in that process can really help with the decisions that you make around support you want to provide, boundaries that you want to set, um, you know, uh, different professionals that you might want to engage to support them if that's a resource that you have access to. And um, and also, I think really identifying some harm reduction techniques is really important, particularly if, if your loved one is at a stage of change that is sort of pre-contemplation, right? Like they, they're maybe thinking about it, but they're not quite ready to move into that, um, to that space yet. And so um, kind of arming yourself with some information about harm reduction can really reduce the stigma and provide some resources that can help usher that decision in. Because really recovery is an invitation. It's not a demand. And so when we shift into that energy of inviting our loved one into recovery um, by doing our own work first, you know, that can also be really a really good place to start. Um, I think that really welcomes in the change in a um, in a less judgmental and, and sort of intense way, if we can take that intensity out of it, we're more likely to get them to, to choose that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you. And it, especially your thoughts on the stigma around addiction, right? I think that's another reason why, like, look at all the beautiful faces on this panel, all the wellness on this panel, right? Like addiction comes in every form and it and it's not... I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not an addict because I'm not homeless on the side of the road, right? And um, that's not what addiction looks like all the time, right? And and it, with 10 million people addicted in this country, I think addiction looks pretty normal and it's obviously blending in more than we realize. Uh, so Lane, what are I, your thoughts? Yeah, I would say that there's more than that because people aren't saying, oh yeah, I have a problem. Or maybe those are the people that 10 million that say I have a problem, but there's... Mm closets full, households full of people who are in denial of what addiction does, right? To come to that willingness of like, oh my God, I think I have a problem. People don't wanna do that. So as a loved one, right? If you're living with somebody who is watching this behavior, it's really having the courage to say, to say something, to open the door for a conversation. And then again, somebody in addiction we have to remember <laughs> once they're addicted and they're in the thick of a disease because this is a mental illness, they, a lot of times they don't want to change, right? They don't want to make any, any uh, big, they don't want to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So I liked what Emily said about having, uh, bringing in support and help 
right? Uh, counseling centers, there's a lot of non there's a ton of nonprofits now that support uh, families in facilitating these types of conversations. But really that first, that first step if somebody has, is just thinking about it yourself, wow, my sister, my brother, my mother, my son, they have a problem, I think they have a problem. But as the person who is wanting to help, you can't do anything until that person is ready and willing to say, I think I have a problem. And that may be harsh to sound, but in reality, you don't wanna be pushing the boulder up the mountain. It's never gonna get up that mountain. That mm -hmm. sister, mother, brother, whoever has to come to it on their own. And it's a lot of times, I love what Emily said, is like bringing in another third party to help out with facilitating that conversation. I love that because I think there is a lot of people listening. And then from the questions that I received, that was the bulk of the question. So how do I even approach that conversation with the person yeah. that, that I love? And um, and what you're saying is so true, because I, I remember when I was in active addiction, I didn't want to hear about it. And I would shun people that would come into my to my space talking about, you know, get sober. Um, it, things had to get really crazy for me <laughs> in order to to get to that crisis level. Right. And I think that, unfortunately, a lot of the clients that I work with now, they everybody waits until that crisis mode. Right. They're not they're not when things are OK, then they're not as open to that dialogue. Right. But I still remember so many friends that at least tried to have the conversation with me. And today I really appreciate that. So I love that perspective, Lane. Uh, Emily Lehman? Yeah, um, what Lane and Emily also said are super important. I also think, um, you know, finding like a community of sorts, whether that's like a mother's group or something else where you can relate to what other people are going through. So you have that sounding board um, and I think if you're trying to approach someone you love that is struggling with addiction, I think you need to take like a, not like accusatory approach, like a soft, like gentle, I'm understanding, not like shaming them and making them feel bad. Um, I think a lot of people don't address the situation properly. So I think going into it in having that, mentality that like okay this is like a delicate flower or like you know like a soft fluffy bunny like you want to be like very gentle and i think some people don't approach it that way and that can make the situation a lot worse and i think that's really important to say at, at first right you do approach it very gently but if you're in that situation for months and mm -hmm. saying i think you have a problem i think you have a problem Right, it be it becomes uh, just tiresome, right, for both parties, and I think that's where somebody else has to step in. And I love that you just brought up Emily, the groups of people for support. Mm -hmm. That is incredibly instrumental, and in just having that support. Uh, and I know in the traditional path, right, there's the group, Al-Anon. Uh, which is for family members and people who love alcoholics. And there's so much support in, in that program. 
Yeah. And I wanted to add too, you know, just understanding what's going on in the addict's brain, right? So when somebody's addicted, whether it's to a substance or, you know, what we call um, process addictions, right? Like a behavior of some sort. Um, and, and, you know, what Lane was saying, it can be really challenging, right? If your loved one is like uh, stealing from you or committing crimes or like putting you in danger, like uh, treating them gently may be challenging, right? Like, cause you're, you may be trying to protect yourself or create your own safety. And so I think it's important to acknowledge the families out there that may be struggling with like, well, I don't want to be nice about it because they haven't been nice, you know, and that's a really easy mm -hmm. place to get to in these situations because it is sometimes um, really intense, right? And so um, understanding what's going on in the brain, and again, like Google's your friend, right? There's so much information out there, um, you know, just kind of learning about the, the prefrontal cortex and the limbic brain, you know, and, and when our loved one is in addiction, they are not in the thinking, I mean, they're not in the feeling part of their brain. They're in like the survival mode part of their brain, right? Like, and they are just going, they're not able to, you know, cause a lot of times I'll be working with a family and I'll talk to the mom or the sister or the wife or the husband and they'll say, well, like, don't they care about how this is affecting me? And, you know, they will when they can get back to that part of their brain. And that's what I love about recovering families is that when the family members get back to that part of their brain, they do care. And that's where the recovery and the repair and the amends and that whole process can unfold. But it does not start there. And expecting your loved one to be able to be in that part of their brain before they're ready is just setting you up for disappointment, setting them up for more shame. And, and that's a big part of the relapse process for some people is that it's just too much too fast. You know, and so we really need to be aware of the process in both physically and chemically, you know, before we start setting expectations. Um, I love that so much. And um, and Emily, you were also talking about the stages of pro uh, progression, right? Um, that people can, yeah. Oh, for, okay. Stages of change. So I think that would be great for people to look up. Um, but each of each of you ladies have brought up the topic of shame, and I've heard shame and guilt, right? And I think that. Um, that definitely triggers relapse, right? So I think that um, remembering that the addict is also aware that, that there is an issue, right? That deep down, I think they sen they sense that there's an issue. Um, so it really does have to come from a place of, of understanding and non-judgment. It has to feel very non-judgmental if you're gonna approach it that way, for sure. Um, but uh, it brings up another topic that I think is really important, uh, especially for people so supporting people in active addiction right now, which is boundaries. <laughs> I'm like, boundaries are so are so huge in recovery. Um, but <laughs> boundaries are your friend. Yes. So what are some ways that loved ones can set up some healthy boundaries to not only protect themselves, but um, to encourage gently nudge? Uh, the person in their life that might need some some extra support. Sleeping in a different room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I would say, oh, go ahead, sorry, Lane. No, I, it's like knowing what's right for you, right? If you're in a household with an active member who's drinking and you don't wanna be around it, then you know your boundary is where where are you safe, right? I've worked with hundreds of ladies where the only safe place for them is their bathroom, right. right? So that is where they retreat and they know that that's where they're going to be able to get on the phone. That's where they can catch their breath. 
but they've set up a boundary. They've said, this is my safe space, right? So as the person who's living in the household, I'm just only taking this one scenario of just defining that, where's my safe space? Where can I go to? And you don't even have to tell the alcoholic because <laughs> they don't even they don't even need to know. They, they, they just, I mean, if it gets to the place it's where probably they're like, better. Yeah, it is probably better. And and there are times when they're like, open up the door, right? And and you're like, no, I'm not opening the door, right? This, I will come out when I'm ready. And you can state it really clearly and not like aggressively. It's just, I'm taking a moment. I'm going to the bathroom. I'll be out soon, right? You don't have to tell them that you're retreating. You're just, this is my, I'm taking a moment. So just really defining that for yourself is important. Go ahead, Emily. I'm sorry. No, that was great. I, I, I'll i just add to it, you know, not doing things for them that they can do for themselves. That's a big one, right? Um, that's probably one of the harder ones, I think, especially if it's your kid or your partner, because what they do or don't do affects you generally, right? So it, that's a challenging one, but it's really important. And that's why the coaching or the help from the support groups or the community or, you know, whatever it is for you can come in handy because you can rely on them for support when you're trying to set these boundaries. Uh, but yeah, doing, you know, doing things for the addict or the alcoholic at any stage in the recovery, either sober or not sober or in the process of deciding, doing their work for them just makes it so that they don't have to do it. And we can't spare anybody the pain they need to grow. It's really part of their process. And I'm not necessarily suggesting tough love, don't do anything. I'm just saying, you know, really become like their their cheerleader. They're, you know, not their, don't do it for them. And that's one of the hardest things to stop doing for the families. Yeah, I've realized that as well, too. Um, and I think s starting off, you know, it can be you can work your way up to bigger boundaries, you know, kind of start small, whether it's OK, I normally give you X amount of money, $20 a week. OK, now I'm going to only give you like five or 10 and like start doing like other things. And so that they have to then start being responsible, I found is really important. Yeah, I think financial boundaries get really important, especially around addiction. If they're asking to borrow money and, you know, no is a complete sentence. You know, and, and also remembering that people in active addiction, like Emily Wessel was saying, they're not in their right mind, essentially. Right. And they, the addiction is driving their brain, literally. And um, and so it is saying no to the addiction not necessarily your loved one. And if you can frame it that way, it's easier to kind of take a stand. Um, I know that there's different types of boundaries. Like we're, we're talking about um, mental boundaries. Like what are some ways that people can protect themselves or put up boundaries uh, mentally? Because we talked about physical boundaries, financial boundaries. We talked about time and energy. For me, I had to like block certain people on my phone um, just so, like I did, couldn't see them or like know anything about like what they're doing just for me and to get over certain things. Um, and for me, that was like setting that boundary of like, I don't want to know anything that this person is doing. Um, but that was just a situation for me. And I think for the mental boundaries, I just go back to um, 
what we talked about earlier of like having a community and falling into that community and that community will take care of the person, you know, whether that be uh, a dad or a, a mom or a, a brother, like whoever it is, but that boundary of like, these are my people, they're safe, they're gonna listen to me, they're gonna hold me and you're gonna stay over there. But finding that strength is gonna be your, your part 100%, mm -hmm. right? But you can find those, those support groups that will help you create that boundary is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think also, you know, being, I, I, so I work in, a, I work in the treatment, you know, space and um, I mean, the treatment center I work at is great because they have these structured sober livings and they have different levels of commitment. And so, you know, essentially when somebody goes to treatment, they're basically saying, okay, I'm going to commit to do this thing, this residential thing or this outpatient thing, you know, this process until my brain comes back online. Like this is a way for the, the person in recovery to make a choice so that their family can not be worried about them or, or not have to be that in that role that they don't know how to be in, right, of, of provider. So by kind of agreeing, if this is within your resources to, um, to go to treatment, if you're the person, you know, struggling or to, you know, intervene and get professionals to support you to get your loved one into, into treatment, this is like a safety plan, essentially, just like if you have a suicidal patient or if you have a patient that's self-harming, you're going to create some type of safety plan for them. And, and recovery, um, particularly treatment involving professionals that can attend to trauma or dual diagnosis issues or anything else that might be going on, this is one space that can be very effective as a safety plan for somebody in addiction. It's not the only space, but it is, you know, one of the evidence-based and, and most commonly chosen spaces. I love that. Thank you, Emily. Um, the other interesting thing uh, that a question that came up uh, from a listener was, um, when when is it okay for me to, or is it okay for me to exit from the person's life? Like, um, particularly, it was um, a gentleman who um, wants his sister is in active addiction, right? And he's like, well, I can't cut her off because she's my sister but she's borrowing money, it's becoming toxic. Like when, when do I say when? Yeah. And I'm sure that uh, um, other people listening right now might have that same question. When I mean, you're that's, done with it. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> like I think when, you're, when you're like, that's the last $5 that you're gonna have. Otherwise, as a person who's addicted, there's never enough. They're gonna just keep coming back right. until there is nothing left. They will bleed you dry mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, right? So again, mm -hmm. it, it has to come from this, this courageous heart that you have mm -hmm. to say, I'm gonna just let you go. I'm gonna let you be. I'm gonna let you find your solution. And when you do, you can come back and I'm gonna celebrate you with love. But yeah, it is, it is a tough place to be in for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the probably the most challenging family dynamic that I work with is the mothers, right? Because the mother, I mean, how do you do that with your child? I can't imagine. I've yeah. never been in a position and I can't even begin to imagine what that choice is like for a mother. But um, what I do know is that by having, how do you make the choice of when enough is enough, right? Because that's the question I get a lot. Like, 
is now enough? Like, and, and, you know, you can put it back on the person and say, well, is it, but they might not know that's part of the problem of being in the dysfunction of addiction in a family system or in a relationship is that you sometimes don't even know when enough is enough for you. Like you lose sight of that in that chaos of, of what's going on. And, um, and that's why it's so important to get your own support. If you're a loved one that's listening and it's in this space, you don't have to make that decision on your own. Like, definitely the goal is to get to what Lane's talking about. Like I've had enough, you're on, you have to do this, you know, but how you make that choice is going to be different for each family and getting support that can help you make that decision and what those boundaries look like is really um, the safest way to go for both, you know, you and a loved one. And I think there's something for mothers or for brothers going with sisters or sisters going, right? Like I think that comes into play with working with somebody Right, so finding a therapist, a mental health professional to support you, to hear you go through this process. Um, I know that there's sober coaching out there, right, that they can help you. There's all these people that are here to support you go through this process of learning when your enough is enough, for, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I also just wanna acknowledge that, you know, as much as I, um, suggest these professionals and these options, they aren't always resources that are available in every community. If, you know, if somebody's in a more rural community or comes from, you know, uh, less resources in some, some matter of speaking, this may not be accessible. So I want to really appreciate that and acknowledge that there are a lot of free resources. Like Lane said, there's a lot of nonprofits out there. There's um, a lot of community support groups, right? Things like Al-Anon and 12-step groups are free. You know, there's all sorts of resources out there that you don't have to be alone with them. This, no matter what level of resources you have, you may just have to work a little harder to find the ones that mm -hmm. you know you can access, but they are available. And with, I mean, that's one of the greatest things about the pandemic. I know it's been a challenging year, but all this stuff on Zoom is making it accessible yeah. in all these communities that haven't had it in the past, as long as they can get a Wi-Fi signal, which in some communities, even that's a challenge, but yeah. you know, at least it's a start. And I think that that's, um, that gives me a lot of hope for this whole space because I think that the lack of resources is really sad in some communities and it's really unfair and people die because of it, which is really scary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, and I love that you're bringing up all of the online resources because there is literally you know, so many things on demand right now that you can just click into a Zoom meeting and get that instant support. And I know that uh, the 12 step uh, programs are definitely a great option. You know, I grew up in a family of 12 steppers and I'm familiar, you know, with the big book. Um, but I also am really curious just to share because I, I know that um, maybe the woman listening right now is not aware of all the holistic options available. Uh, to offer their family members struggling with addiction. So what type of holistic options do you guys um, recommend that's been effective in your recovery and with the clients that you work with? Um, Emily, okay. I, I was gonna say, I think, I mean, Narissa, you and I know each other because of the breathwork community, you know, and I, I'm a big fan of breathwork as a somatic technique. I think it helps with nervous system regulation. And this is a great technique for the family that's dealing with all this stress and the loved one who's dealing with the stress. Cause that's really the thing you have in common with your loved one is the amount of stress and dysregulation in your nervous system that addiction can create in a system, right? Um, so I'm a huge fan of breathwork and that's an option. And I know you provide 
you know, awesome breathwork groups, Nerissa, but there's tons of resources for that online. There's lots of sliding scale and free community groups available for that online, in person. I'm sure it's much bigger out here on the West Coast, but I know there's some providers on the East too, where I'm from. So I think that's a really cool holistic technique that helps a lot with the stress. Amazing. And Lane Kennedy also uh, is a breathwork uh, facilitator. She teaches a different style, um, but it's very profound. And Lane, do you want to share some of, and I know that you do a lot of beautiful things with nutrition and uh, Chinese medicine. And so would you like to share some of your holistic? Sure. Uh, I think there's a lot of different options out there. Again, it's just looking for them. So one of the practices that I do is uh, a breathwork into yoga nidra and talk about changing the neural pathways, yeah. right? We wanna get the body out of fight or flight and we, we do that in literally like 10 minutes. Uh, so I do a lot of mindfulness work. Uh, I bring a lot of MBSR into facilities and we uh, teach people um, how to use the practice in order to not relapse because that's such a huge issue. So mindfulness, meditation, uh, breath work are all really great holistic practices. Uh, the other thing that I'll just mention is looking at your DNA. Because once you look at your DNA, you can really see like, oh, um, what are some things that I can change in how I eat? Uh, what supplements? Uh, what can I what are these things that I can implement to change the neurochemistry? Uh, because the addicted brain, that chemical concoction is messed up. <laughs> Let's just call it that way. So when we look at the DNA, we can say, oh, well, we can supplement and support you here, which is going to upregulate the DNA and support the uh, sobriety of somebody's recovery. The other thing that I'll mention right now is, um, did you want to talk about support groups as well? Um, yes, we'll definitely get to that. Okay. okay. Yeah. We'll do that next. Okay. Emily Lehman. Oh, thank you, Lane. Yeah. Um, I really just, I don't know if this is even really considered holistic, but hot yoga for me really, um, has been very, very beneficial. Um, even, just in the, you know, the last five to 10 minutes of class, like the slowing, the breathing, the meditation, um, that for me and journaling, journaling has been very, very therapeutic for me too. Beautiful. Yeah. The hot yoga will change you. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. And it makes your skin glow. Like what, what's not to love about hot yoga. Yeah. It's so funny. Nope. I love that. Well, yes. Um, so, and I, I, I love all the, the breath work, definitely meditation, yoga. Um, another thing that I, I've been studying a lot over the last couple of years is hypnosis. You know, and if you're yeah. uh, supporting somebody that is struggling with cravings and, you know, talk about reprogramming the brain. I mean, um, there's so many different options to do, to do it. Right. So um, I would recommend looking into hypnotherapy as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so next, I, I would definitely love to talk about some support groups that are available. What are some support groups uh, that you guys recommend to clients that you feel are, are really effective for not only people that are supporting um, people in addiction, um, but people um, that can support the actual people in addiction? Emily Wessel, you want to go first? 
Oh, sure. Um, so, I mean, a lot of treatment centers have family support programs that are free resources. Oftentimes you can access those resources for years after, even if your loved one leaves treatment or doesn't complete it. Um, many of the treatment centers have alumni type of support for families. Um, there's also, you know, treatment centers that actually um, take families in, right? So they're like, for example, when I was in early recovery and I was dealing with a loved one who was also trying to get into recovery, um, the Karen Foundation had a program called Breakthrough and there's different things you can do, you know, um, retreats and different wellness things that you can do that are sort of like to support families. Um, and so those are, you know, some paid and sort of unpaid resources would be like, you know, 12 step groups like Al-Anon or adult children of alcoholics or, you know, there's all kinds of different, I mean, there's like a 12 step program for everything, right? And so you'll find your tribe if you just start to look especially in the online space. Um, yeah, and I think there's also just community support groups for breath work and different types of, you know, somatic techniques, um, yoga. There's lots of people that teach yoga for free if they're, you know, beginning their training and there's lots of opportunities for community-based support. Mm -hmm. Right, thank you. Mm -hmm. Lane, I, I know you had some great ones to share. What have been your go-to's that you refer clients to? Yeah. Uh, what I love about what's happening right now is that the pathway to recovery is so broad. It, it is really so is. It's expanded so much. It's, it is it's incredible. Uh, so there are many organizations that have come up over the last, uh, I want to say the last five years. Uh, Sober Sis is one of those communities. Uh, the Tempest is one of those. She Recovers. Uh, Smart. So those are the top ones. Um Smart recovery is another one. Um, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> and we'll put some of these in the show notes. I'm actually going to create a tip sheet with some of these. So if, um, yeah, so people can access it. Yeah. Refuge recovery is another one. Um, again, so many different pathways. But if you don't know what to look for, you're only going to find the 12 steps in AA honestly. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about like a great place to go to is the sober curator. Mm -hmm. uh, the sober curator has a, a resource guide there that has a ton of information and different types of places to get sober for sure. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Emily? Yeah, for me, um, I did like a lot of like Facebook communities and like Reddit. Um, I did not because like, you know, I didn't, I have never really done the NA Zoom thing. Um, so for me, yeah, finding those like online communities via Facebook, Reddit, like those types of avenues were definitely very helpful for me. Um, more so more recently, not, I didn't really, sounds dumb, but I didn't like look to think on, like to look on Facebook for like groups like that when I was like in my younger twenties, um, like at all. I just didn't even, I just, I don't know. I didn't think to look for them. So, but it makes sense. Who, who thinks about looking for something like that? Right. It's like, yeah, mm -hmm. so now, um, I've been diving like into that community a lot more this year and it's been really awesome. So I encourage anyone who's like even super curious, I mean, just take a look, see what's out there and connect with people, you know, yeah. it hurt you. And I have to yeah. grab oh. my computer charger. So I'm not disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> There's also, um, 
there's also this Naked Mind uh, group, and there's also uh, We Are the Luckiest Club. There's also, I mean, there's so many, that's what I'm saying. There's so many of these <laughs> groups that are available. And, and it's like finding your flavor. Right. Like finding your like tribe of people who you want to hang out with. You got to like pick and choose where you want to go. Yeah, I mean, on Instagram too, like you can, if you're an Instagram person or, you know, a clubhouse mm -hmm. person, you can, there's all kinds of meeting rooms that you can go in and just talk with people and you don't have to, you can be a loved one that's just looking for information and education. You can be sober curious. You can be, you know, somebody that, um, you know, maybe had some sober time and then decided to go a different way, but you still want to live a healthy lifestyle. There's all different levels of this. It doesn't have to be black and white. And I think that's the area that we get into trouble is when there only are these like this or that options. And so, you know, follow people on Instagram, you know, treatment centers, different types of recovery, you know, there's Dharma recovery, there's, you know, all kinds of really cool, just go, you know, go ha have fun. Like, like just, it's an adventure, right? Of education and learning and um, and, you know, you can just kind of see what other people are doing and, and start to get some of that information that way. I love that. And, and also what I keep hearing from all of you ladies is, is really just, just begin to get curious, right. And to begin to ask questions because the more that you ask questions of, you know, people that the best way that I found was just to look at people around me that were successfully sober and that they had a life that I was interested in in having not not like you're going to have exactly that person's life. Right. But they look like they are a good example of where you would like to go. Right. And I think that is true for business as well. When we're looking at hiring a coach or, you know, having a mentor in anything. Right. So it's, it's the same process in finding your sober tribe. Right. You just want to go out into the world and start exploring, see what feels right and find something that's in alignment with your beliefs, right? And find something that's in alignment with, you know, the goal that you have and, and the view that you have as far as what sobriety means to you, because that's a big part of it too. Um, you know, I don't have anything against a 12 step uh, AA program, uh, except for that I grew up in a family that was totally engrossed in AA. And so as a rebel, I, that totally repelled me. You know, I, I had to do it my own way just because I'm stubborn, you know, and I know that, um, you know, the woman listening probably has a, if your person in addiction is probably stubborn, right? So it's got to be appealing and it's got to feel like it's going to be something that's comfortable. Because I know what didn't work was um, going into groups and of people that I was like, oh, wow, I just don't belong here. This is just not for me because it just wasn't the right vibe. So a lot of what you guys are saying is just trial and error. Mm -hmm. So I love that. Um, so I, I know that we're kind of coming up. We have about 15 minutes left. So I want to be respectful of everybody's time. But I also want to just kind of open up um, the question of, you know, for the person that is supporting somebody in active addiction, uh, another question that I had was um, from uh, actually a spouse who was like, well, what if I don't think that it's that bad? You know, what if, what if it kind of looks like that person might be, you know, taking a few too many pills, but they're really productive around the house or they're getting a lot of stuff done or they seem to be in a really good mood. Um, but then I noticed that the downtime is, you know, that they don't feel very good about themselves. Um, so 
you know, what is what does that look like as that person goes through recovery? Like, what can they expect? Do they want the person to get clean? Do, I'm not quite sure of the question. Well, I guess it's they they can see that their their person has an active issue, but it might be um, there might be some barrier because they're kind of afraid of what it looks like when that person changes, right? Yeah. I mean, I might, I'm going to take the, maybe the little more controversial part of that, because I think that a lot of times it's really easy to look at the other person and say, you know, they're fine or they need to change. Right. And I think the first shift um, is, is within ourselves. Right. So if we have a loved one that's in addiction and we want to be supportive of them, you know, I think the invitation is also to us as the loved one to, to start kind of doing our own work, right? Like, what is it about this person's life that bothers me? What is it that I, why do I need them to change? What would, what would the change look like? You know, how, how am I a part of things getting this way or not getting to the next thing, you know? And so being really clear on self sets up, a, I think, a more, um, I don't know, I guess a more positive um, opportunity for, for any change to happen, whether the change is walking away from the person or the change is inviting them into recovery or something in between. But I think that we all have to be willing to do our own work and, and not be super focused on the other person in the dynamic. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think to, to better frame that question, it was kind of like, you know, I, I, want, I want them to change, but I don't want everything to change, right? And I think that that can be kind of a trap within itself, right? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I think if someone is going to get clean, the they're obviously going to be a different person when they get sober. So I feel like that's mm -hmm. honestly kind of selfish um, that, mm -hmm. I mean, you if you want the best for them, then you're going to have to, you know, take what comes when they do get clean and sober. And if you don't like that person, then I guess keep it moving. And like, you, you're going to have to find someone else because if you want what's best for them and you guys aren't aligning, then, you know, you'll have to, yeah, put in that work and see if you can make those changes. And if you guys can't, then it's okay to go your separate ways. That's people change. People change all the time. You're not going to be the same person forever, you know, and 20 years from now, I hope I'm a totally different person than the person I am today. <laughs> so you have to give and take, I think. And that's really important. I love that. What are your thoughts on that, Lane? Well, I was just thinking about like, you know, if they're questioning if the person has a problem, right? Like, well, maybe they have a problem with pills. Maybe not. We'll just take the pills, flush them and see what happens. You'll know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you'll know, like, do they have a problem or not? Um, so that's kind of the first inquiry. Uh, and then the second inquiry is like what I said earlier about like, you've got to have the courage, right? To lovingly say, okay, enough is enough. It's like, you've got to find your power inside to say, I'm done. And, and if you're not there yet, then you're not there and that's okay. Right. Yeah. Relish in it. Love it. <laughs> Learn Enjoy it as much as you can until you can. Yeah. Until you can't yeah. because it, it takes, it, it's like no one changes until 
the absolute end of the road. Like there's no, there's no stopping before the end. Like you got to go all the way down to the end and then you take mm -hmm. a left, but you can't, you can't short, you can't make a shortcut on this one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's hard. I know. And, and, and that's really important you say that lane. I think a lot of people like try to, t you know, cut a shortcut in this and this is just you you cannot i hear so many people say that you know like i try oh and it's like oh i'm just gonna cut this corner and like you can you absolutely cannot do that so it's very 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 important but also as a loved one we can we can be a part of the problem too right so we have to be able to look at that yes. and and get out of the way Right. Because sometimes if we're in there doing their work for them or, you know, if we're not ready to make the decision of like, OK, I'm done. Well, OK, then what can I do? Right. I'm not ready to be done. We're not at the end of the road. So I think maybe, you know, a part of this question could be like, what do I do in until then? Like, how how should I show up in this relationship? And that's again, that's going to be individual. That's why having professional help or support, you know, is going to be you got to get outside of the dysfunctional system and get some perspective. Right. So, you know, where, you know, where the next moves are going to be and, and what, you know, what the boundaries should be. And and I mean, I'm a huge advocate for harm reduction, even as a very traditional 12 step person, you know, clinically as a therapist, harm reduction saves lives, period. So if you have a loved one on opiates, you should have Narcan, you should know how to use it, you should make sure it's not expired. And, you know, even if your loved one's in recovery, because sometimes, oftentimes overdoses happen when the person yep. is over and they just have a, a, a day, a slip, right? And, and their system isn't used to it, or, you know, um, there's all kinds of scary things that can happen. And so just being, have your family trained in that, like have your friends, you know, of the loved one, anybody who's involved in this process, right? If the loved one's not ready, that's okay. There's things you can do, you know, to make sure that they're alive when when they get to the point of being ready. Mm -hmm. And I know that's scary for some people to hear, but ignoring harm reduction as a as a as a choice, like something that we can do. Um, I just we don't want to have the regret afterwards. So you know, like look into that mm -hmm. if, you, if you have a loved one, especially with the opiate stuff because that's really scary these days. I think that opiate no, that could be a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Most definitely. And I love the harm reduction, right? Because it, I mean, it, I, just speaking from my own recovery, it happened in stages, right? I wasn't ready to fully give everything up. Uh, and so for me, I stopped one thing and then I was like, oh, you know what? This feels really good. So maybe I'll stop another thing. Um, so for me, it, it was a gradual change until it totally just fell out. I fell off the wagon completely. And then it was a huge disaster. <laughs> and then I was like, oh yeah, okay. Maybe all of it needs to go. Um, but that brings me to another point. Sorry, that was really loud. Now that brings me to another point um, of this whole idea about do people have to hit rock bottom, right? The term rock bottom, it kind of bothers me uh, because I don't believe in rock bottom. I think that if um, to some degree, if we just kind of let people go till they hit rock bottom, um, I, I feel like rock bottom is truly death or, or disabled, right? Um, and I'm interested that's to your hear- definition. Have, Yeah. That's your definition, right? Like everyone has a different definition of what rock bottom is. For me, it was totally yes. emotional and spiritual. Like I had all kinds of stuff and I had a lot of money and I had like everything looked really nice. But my rock bottom was like, 
I wanted to put a gun in my mouth because it was emotionally exhausting. Mm. So the rock bottom, I think, is different. It's it's the individuals de defining it. And do I think people need to hit it? Yes, absolutely. Okay, awesome. No, and that's definitely what I'm looking for is each one of your perspective on that. I, um, I mean, I think that, that, yeah, rock bottom is definitely different for everybody. Um, I think that's the hardest part about the working with the families is that the different definition, like the mom's like, well, rock bottom's bad enough. You already got kicked out of school and got arrested. And the, the addict's like, well, I, this isn't rock bottom for me because I'm still having fun, right? And then the dad has a different definition. I mean, it's just like everybody involved, right, has a different definition of rock bottom. So, like, that's a really good point, right? Having, um, and this is where, again, the perspective of somebody doesn't have to be a professional, but just somebody outside of the system coming in and discussing, like, these different expectations and the different definitions of bottoms and, you know, um, and, and also just kind of, you know, the old school tough love approach really is let them hit bottom and hope they don't die. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that we can do in between. If your loved one is has a mental illness in addition to addiction, there's things you can do to help them stabilize that that can help support their recovery. If they, you know, there's a lot of um, moving parts in these situations. And so um, I just, again, I don't think it's black and white, right? Um, I think there's a, a lot of resources out there and education is your friend in this situation. If we had the tools within ourselves and within our family systems to fix this problem, we wouldn't be in this problem. <laughs> so so mm -hmm. I really invite people, and not to say that spirituality and going within with meditation, that's a whole nother conversation, but I'm talking about like specific action-based resources, right? Like we cannot fix the problem with the problem. We have to get outside of the dynamic and get some support and some education um, to move the yardstick. Absolutely. And, and they, uh, that's a definition of insanity, right? It's just doing the same over the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, right? So if what you're doing is not working, then it definitely is time to seek out some outside support and guidance, which you have amazing ladies right here at your disposal, if you guys have questions. Mm -hmm. And Emily, did you have anything to add to that? Um, No, you know, I think they, Lane and Emily really hit it on the head. I think everyone's interpretation of rock bottom is different. Um, I think, you know, you can have more than one rock bottom. You know, someone might have a few, you know, along the way down. You know, I it's everyone's pathway is different. Um, and I, I do think it's beneficial that, I mean, you hit a rock bottom or some, something big, um, happens, you know, whether that's you get in an accident or whatever it might be. Um, I do think that that is, I think people just from my own experiences, you know, you really have to experience something that really, you know, just scares the shit out of you and kind of scares you back straight. Um, and, you know, I think if you don't get that, then you're just going to keep doing it and going and going and going until you do, or if not something else worse happens. Um, so, and, and here's something really interesting. I'm just going to throw it in there, mess it up maybe, but there are people, right. There are people that are um, laying in a hospital bed, right. Because they OD'd and then they go out the next day and do it again. Right. We have oh people my gosh, that, we see that um, all the time. Right. We see that all the time. Right. We have, um, 
you know, Demi Lovato talking about this, like it's, it's mm -hmm. normal. So we have this whole movement of um, Cali sober happening, right? So it's like every person has to define what it is that's gonna be their end point. Like I don't get to define that. So it's, it can be really, really challenging as the loved one to be watching this unfold. And again, that just comes back to like taking care of, as the loved one, taking care of the loved one Right, mm -hmm. getting those spiritual, mental, emotional needs met, that is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, I know that we're coming up on time, but I want to ask one more question, if that's okay with everybody. And um, Elaine brought up a really good point, and I think this is a great place for us to end on, is as somebody who is loving and supporting somebody with an addiction, how do we find how do we source the courage to step up and take care of ourselves and to do what needs to be done? Like, where does that courage come from? Emily? Um, I think that's a, I mean, that's a complex question, right? Because it's going to be very different for everybody. I think it, you know, it has a lot to do with your cultural background, your belief system, what you value, your self-esteem, where you gain things, you know, from spiritually, um, where you resource from, right? And so for one person that might be going to church and being in that community, for another person, it might be being in nature. For someone else, it might be going to yoga, you know? Um, now, if you're in a crisis and your loved one is addicted, going to a yoga class may not do anything for you except make you feel crappy because you have to think about it for an hour and sweat too, right? So <laughs> not every solution is going to fit every situation, but I think mm -hmm. that you know, um, as much as we want to take care of the loved one who's addicted and as much as we wish the loved one would take care of themselves, we have to give that same amount of energy to taking care of ourselves in that situation. And if we can do that, then we're probably off to a good start. I love that. That's amazing. Lane, what do you have? What perspective do you have to add? I think that's it. I mean, that's what I've been saying this whole time. It's like as the caretaker or as the person who's seeking help, it's 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 finding your strength wherever that may be in nature, in journaling, in, you know, church, just like what Emily just said. It's it's getting right with yourself. And that can be really scary right there. Like admitting, oh, my God, my child is an alcoholic. Oh, my God, my sister Right, like those, that's a really big, scary thought. So just sitting with that, holding it, and not taking the blame for it, because it's not yours. You didn't cause the alcoholism in somebody else, right? They're not drinking because of you. So, and again, that's just this internal work that as humans, we have to do. Um, so whatever that means for you, you have to you have to really dig in and find it. I love everything that Emily has been talking about. Wonderful, thank you, Emily Lehman. Yeah, you know I think it's really hard to even think about putting yourself first when you are so overwhelmed and you are dealing with someone who's addicted to a substance or alcohol. Um, it's extremely overwhelming and it's very taxing. So I think just even if it's like one night a week, like scheduling like 
20 minutes just of you time, whether it's like for you to like sit in the shower unbothered or like read a book, go for a walk. I'm a big walker. Um, I love to get outside and walk. Um, so I think just trying to prioritize just a little bit of time for you and build off of that. Um, just to start trying to put yourself first. And I know it's hard that you want to put everything you have into helping that person, your son, brother, sister, mom. Um, but you know, you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you can help others. And I think people forget that a lot. So you just have to remember to take care of yourself too. I love that. And that's great advice and great tips and perspectives that you guys shared today. Um, and I know we are coming to an end. So I would love to uh, just hear from you ladies, uh, what, uh, how people can get a hold of you. What's the best way to contact you, to work with you, uh, so people can reach out? Uh, Emily? Yeah, um, so if you have a loved one who is in need of treatment or even just a consultation or you just have questions, you can reach the organization I work for, um, thrivetreatment.com, or if you want to reach out to me directly for breathwork, private practice, or just any kind of support, um, you can reach me at just emilywessel.com. Beautiful. Elaine? Uh, you can learn more about me and what I'm doing in the world. I work with a lot of mothers. Uh, you can find out everything over at recoverlikeamother.com. I also have a podcast, and you can find that podcast on any iTunes player or any podcast player, recoverlikeamother.com. Thanks for having me, Riz. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, and that, she has an amazing podcast. Please do check it out. Uh, Emily Lehman. Yeah, um, you guys can find me um, on my podcast in layman's terms. You can also find it on any Apple player, whatever platform. Um, and then Instagram, uh, layman's underscore terms. I'm on social media a lot. And yeah, always reach out. My DMs are always open if you have any questions. So Beautiful. Thank you, ladies. And I'd like to add that um, I also work with a uh, great organization called Breathwork for Recovery. And you can find us at breathworkforrecovery.com. And I also offer a women's circle every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And you can find me there um, at breathewithrisk.com. Uh, so there's lots of different options. And for thank you so much for listening all the way through with us today. These fabulous ladies just pouring out uh, their experience and perspective. And I hope it was helpful. We'd love to hear from you. So feel free to uh, to contact myself or anybody on the panel today for more information on how you can support uh, your loved ones. And again, thank you, everybody. And we'll say bye for now. So bye. Meeting you all. Have a good day. Bye, everyone.